This morning we're continuing in our series called Taking Your Place at the City Gate. So far in this series we looked at the importance of godly biblical values at the city gate and what it means to be salt and light in our city gates. And then in Joel chapter 1 and 2 we looked at God's call to return to these godly biblical values. And then last time we continued in Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 as well. We looked at the uh, vital need for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people for spreading the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. All right. Now today uh, and in the next couple of weeks, we're going to begin looking at some of these city gates that we've been talking about and what God has to say about them in scripture, because, you know, if we don't know what God has to say about these things, then how can we be any good? I mean, if we don't bring with us to the city gates the things that God says will leave behind a blessing or be a blessing, then how are we going to leave behind a blessing once we've been there? Or if we bring darkness to the city gates, how are we going to help anybody else see any more clearly, right? So um, as we begin this morning, there's a passage that I want to look at. It's from Paul's letter to the Colossians, and it's going to inform our discussion, not only this morning, but also for the next couple of weeks as well. And the idea is kind of foundational to everything that we're going to talk about and going to say. So it's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And it says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Would you bow and pray with me over the word of God this morning? Oh, dear Heavenly Father. Thank you for being in our lives. We ask you to pour out your spirit on us today. Help us in all our ways to acknowledge you, to honor you, your purposes, your designs, and your intentions in our lives. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. amen. It says, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, this is talking here about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And first it says here that all things were created through him. Now, usually, you know, when we talk about God's creation, we very naturally think about the earth, right? And all the created things and the cosmos and all the planets and the sun and the moon and the stars and the, all the, uh, the, the plants and the animals and all of the people, right? Those physical things that we can see and interact with, right? But I want you to look at that phrase here, visible and invisible. You know, we don't often talk about the invisible creations of God. These are things that you can't really hold in your hands, so to speak. They're less tangible. However, they're as real and as important as the earth and everything in it. Now, some people read this verse here, and they kind of consign all of the invisible things to the spiritual realm. Things like angels and demons and, uh, and the spiritual realm and heaven and things like that. And, and certainly that's part of it. However, the, the phrase here, thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, seems to indicate that Paul has in mind also... Some of the less tangible earthly kinds of things that God has created. And, and Bible scholars have identified 
three institutions in the world that God himself has created. They are the family, human government, and the church. And then there's also a number of other human endeavors and activities that, that are God's creation as well. Things like education and labor and work and the arts and artistic expressions. These, all these invisible things are concepts. They're, they were created by God as much as the physical universe was created by God. These were God's ideas. But look a little bit further in this verse. Notice that it says, not only were these things created through him, but also they were created for him. Right, you've got it, for him. Okay, so all things created for him, visible and invisible creations, everything we've been talking about, they all created for him. It's about him. It's not really about us. Right, now... Now, he loves us, he wants us to be blessed and part of his, you know, uh, his, his purposes and, and ideas and all of that. But one thing you've got to know about God, you must come to him on his terms. God doesn't adjust for anybody. The Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he doesn't adjust for us. He doesn't adjust for me. He doesn't adjust for you. If you're going to come to God, you have to come to him on his terms. And if you want to experience his grace and his kindness, you must come to him on his terms. And if you want his blessing and his favor on all of these areas of life that we've been talking about, we must use them according to how he created them, according to his purposes and intentions and design. So think of it like this. Imagine for a minute that you built this great, awesome, big home because you had the resources to do that. And because you love people so much. How many of you love people? Wow, two hands. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I didn't give you enough chance. How many of you love people, right? Um, some people love people who love them, right? No, God says love people, right? And so because you love people, you created this big, huge house with, with large rooms for entertaining people and a large dining room and, and guest rooms and all of that kind of thing. And so you had this one celebration. You had to go out for a few things. And you come back, and the whole house is just trashed. And you go into the, the large entertaining area, and the windows are smashed in. And you ask somebody, what in the world's going on? Why are these windows smashed in? And they kind of answer you, well, it was kind of warm in here. We just wanted the cross breeze. You know, and uh, you go, well, why didn't you turn on the air conditioning? That's what it's there for. And they look back at you and say, well, that's really narrow-minded. And who are you to judge me anyway? Right? And then, then you go into the dining room, and the large dining room table that you planned on having this great meal with all these people with is now out in the front yard, and everybody's dancing in the dining room. People are jumping on the beds and swinging from the rafters. I mean, what would you do in that situation? I mean, would, would, you, would, you, would you be sad? Would you cry? You know, would you, uh, uh, would you be upset? Would you do something about it? You know, what would you do in, in that kind of a situation? Well, if you think that's crazy, well, I agree. I mean, that, that is crazy. Who could imagine such a callous disregard for the purposes and designs of the person who created this place? I mean, that's unthinkable. Nobody comes to your house and acts that way. Right? Maybe, maybe some of you could testify right now. Most of the time, nobody comes to your house and acts that. I know if you've got small children, you know, maybe. Okay, so for a minute, though, imagine what it's like for God now. The one who never changes, right? Who created all these things that we're talking about. The family, human government, the church, work and labor, the arts, education. Imagine what it's like for him, from his perspective, as he looks at things, to see those who that he's invited 
uh, to enjoy these things, using them in ways that ignore and despise his purposes and his designs and his ideas. Because remember, not only does the verse say that all things were made by God and for God, it also says that he was before all these things. I mean, he was there before us. He precedes us, right? We just came along later and start using all of these things. Then it goes on to say something else that's crucial. He says, in him, all things hold together. All right, so all of these invisible creations of God, the family, human government, the church, education, labor, the arts, and on and on, all these things hold together. They all function properly in him. That is, when his design and purposes and intention is honored and followed, they function properly. They hold together. They're the blessing that God intends for them to be. But when we move away from God's purposes and his design, well, you know, that mess and destruction that I described in my illustration, that's what happens to society. That's what happens in the city gates. When we come along and just ignore the creator and his wishes and design and purposes for, that the creator has at the city gates, it just it causes a mess. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All right, now, today... City gate we're going to be looking at is the family. It's the first institution that God created right after creating the material universe. On the, the first of God's invisible creations, if you will. It's before human government. It's even before the church. And it's created concurrently with the physical creation of humanity. It's right there at the beginning. So it's foundational. Now, today, um, he has a design for it. He has purposes that include love and blessing and favor Honest. However, the biblical idea of the family has been tremendously challenged in the last 50 years or so. First came no-fault divorce, followed by rising divorce rates and, and cohabitation. This was followed by the free sex movement and the, the abortion industry. Then the LGBTQ agenda has challenged the family as well. And finally, lately, the gender identity has, uh, movement has challenged the foundation of God's design in creation. And so it's important for us to know what God says about all of these things in his word. So now, you know, some of the ideas that we cover today, some of you might be familiar with. Some of you, maybe many of you might be familiar with. However, I believe, I want you to hear this, I believe the Holy Spirit might have a little bit of a different twist for some of us this morning. You know, and I'm going to encourage you, as we go through these ideas, to think about them in a little bit of a different way than, than usual. Instead of thinking about them in terms of right and wrong, and what is right and what is wrong, and in terms of uh, I'm, I'm right, I want to prove somebody else wrong, and that type of thing. Instead, think about them in terms of being light in the city gates. How do we fulfill God's ideas and be light in the city gates at the same time? Now, as we begin, as we begin to look at this, at, at this gate, um, there's just something else I want to say right at the beginning as we start. You know, we live in a fallen world. This is not the Garden of Eden anymore, right? And also, this is not the manifest kingdom of Jesus that will be after Jesus comes and returns. And everything is restored, completed to how it's supposed to be, right? We're not in the Garden of Eden, and we're not in the restored uh kingdom as well. And that means that, you know, everybody has some brokenness that we experience 
before we come to Christ. You know, sometimes it's due to our own mistakes and our own failures. Sometimes it's due to somebody else's mistakes and selfishness and failures. And sometimes a sermon like this that looks like God's ideal, you know, about what the family is supposed to be, has the potential to bring up some past failures, right? And so I want you to know, you know, and make it clear this morning, this is not my intention. I'm not intending to, like, bring up past failures or throw things in people's face or bring up stuff that's already been repented of and, and forgiven by the Lord Jesus and is under the blood or anything like that. It's not to bring up anything like that or uh, to rehash those things. My sole focus is simply to ask, you know, in, in the time that we live now, what does God have to say about the family and God's purposes and designs? And so to do that, we're going to look back at the place where God created the family. The first chapter of Genesis, all right? And as we look through this chapter, you're all familiar with the first chapter of Genesis, right? We see God in the midst of this whirlwind of activity, of creative activity. It takes six days. He creates light and dark. He creates the moon and the sun and all of the stars. And he creates the earth and uh, the water and the sea. And he creates all of the plants. And he creates the birds and the fish and all the animals that, that, that move across the ground. And then at the end, of verse, at, at verse 26, at end of the sixth day, he says... Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Let us make man, let us make mankind in our image. Now, this is hugely important. When, when God made humanity, it was in the image of God. Now, this is different. This is different than anything that went before. None of the animals were created in the image of God. But humanity is. It's what we call the Imago Dei, the image of God stamped upon every single person. And that's why every single person alive, whether white or black or Hispanic or Asian or African or Middle Eastern or whatever, every single person alive has value because the image of God is stamped on that person. I mean, you can't meet a person anywhere who does not have value. Even people who disagree with you on politics have the image of God stamped on them. All right, three amens. They, dare I even say it here in Philadelphia? Even people who root for the Cowboys or the Giants have value. There were no amens on that. I'm going to come preach over here a little bit, I think. God can redeem a Cowboys fan as fast as he can redeem an Eagles fan. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Stace, God can redeem a Red Sox fan as fast as he can redeem a Yankees fan. All right. Every single person has the image of God stamped on them and has value in God's sight. Then he goes on in verses 27, 28, and 31. He says, uh, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Okay, now there's several things that flow from this that I, that I want you to see. So let's look at them. First, the first is that he created us male and female. I mean, that was God's idea. And I want you to notice something important here. When God looked at how he created humanity, he said that it was very good. Now, 
At the end of every other day, at the end of all of the other creations, when, when God looked at what he created, he said it was good. But when he created humanity, both male and female, he said it is very good. Very good. And this God idea, it's really important because, you know, throughout the centuries, people have devalued one or the other. Throughout the centuries, even today, there have been cultures that tremendously devalued and mistreated women. I mean, some places they've been treated like property. They've been used or abused or discarded at will. In some places, they've even been denied basic human rights. And then sometimes today, in some areas of our culture, being a man is devalued and sometimes treated as though it's something to be ashamed of. When we get away from God's ideas and purposes and plans for his creation, it can lead to a big mess, to the devaluing of people and to abuse. But God's idea is that his creation is very good. If you're a man, God says that is very good. And if you're a woman, God says that is very good. He made the male and female and said it was very good. And then next I want you to notice this about these verses. Is that God's blessing is on the family. God's blessing is on the family. After he created us, male and female, in his image it says, God blessed them. Now don't rush over that for a minute here. Um, he placed his favor on it. You know, sometimes we see that word blessed and we think of it in kind of shallow terms uh, that mean kind of little more than like good wishes for you. Like, have a blessed day, everybody. Or someone sees it and you say, well, hey, God bless you. And it's kind of in shallow terms. But in the Bible, the idea of being blessed is much, much deeper than that. It's a pronouncement of favor and goodwill or blessings on an individual, a group, or a situation. Like, Isaac blessed Jacob. Jacob laid hands on his sons and blessed them. And these were more than just well wishes for a nice future. They were prophetic utterances and pronouncements for them. Jesus in the Beatitudes said that you are blessed if you are these things that he's talking about. If you act in the ways he's talking about, he says, you are blessed. That is favored of God. Have the blessing and favor of God on you. And so here, that's what's happening with the family. God pronounces a blessing on it, his favor on it. The family is created uh, by God, is blessed by God. God created us male and female, blessed the family. And then next, we see that his, this family that is blessed by God begins with the union of one male and one female. Look down a little bit further at chapter 2, verse 24. Here in Genesis chapter 2, God gives us more detail about how the creation of humanity went down. And after God created Adam, it says, God brought all the animals to him, and he named each one of them. But in verse 20, it says, but no, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. It's like God's looking around and can't find anyone who's suitable for him. And he says, it's not good for him to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. Now, any of you wives who's had the opportunity to maybe go away for a few days, maybe go to a retreat, or you go for work uh, for a few days, and when you're coming home, you're kind of worried about what you're going to find when you get there, you all understand why God said it's not good for the man to be alone. Right? It's not good for the man to be alone. 
And so God causes Adam to fall into this deep sleep. He removes one of his ribs, and it says in verse 22, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. This is the first blind date in history. It's also the first arranged marriage all right, in history. I just love that. Imagine God waking you up one day and saying, Hey, 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 wake up. There's someone I want you to meet. She's great. You're going to love her. You know, and, uh, you're going on a date. Um, no, don't wear that, you know, because you're getting married too. <laughs> you know, what, 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 getting married? Oh, you're going to love her. Just trust me. All right? Well, that's kind of what's going on here. Verse 24 says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the idea is that they are intended to love and honor and compliment and complete each other. Then Jesus also validated this idea when the Pharisees were questioning him by saying, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And all through the Bible this idea is reiterated and developed and validated, right? So God's idea and purpose for the family begins with a union between one male and one female. And then next, the next thing I want you to see is that um, God intends for this union, this marriage unit, to last for a lifetime. That is, until it is broken by one or the other of the partners by death. Right? So look back at verse uh, 24 of chapter 2 again. It says, That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now Jesus, when the Pharisees asked him, you know, if it was okay for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason, he quoted this verse and added, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, I know that there's a lot of questions about this, and, you know, uh, you may be asking, well, what if a divorce does happen? What if it happened in my past? You know, what if it happened before I came to Christ? What if it happened after I came to Christ? All these questions. Well, I don't have time to go into all of those in detail right now, but I do want to let you know, if you missed it, about a year ago, on October 6, 2019, uh, I gave a message that dealt with a whole bunch of those questions, what the scriptures have to say. So you can check that out on our website if you have more questions about that. But for now, God's idea, God's purpose, His intention, is that marriage be a loving an honoring relationship that lasts for a lifetime. And then next, God created and blessed the family for the purpose of producing godly offspring. Now look at verse 28 again. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now there's two things I want you to notice here. Now the first one's obvious. This is the one you, 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 um, you go to right away, right? God loves children. Right, in case you didn't know, God loves children. Any doubt in anyone's mind that God loves children, this verse should drive that idea far from your mind. And if after this verse, you know, you still have any doubt about whether God loves children, I'd refer you to Jesus' statement when the disciples were trying to keep the children away from Jesus and, and he rebuked them and said, Let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. The idea that children should not be heard and just, just be in the corner somewhere, you know, that didn't originate with Jesus. Jesus says, bring them to me. God loves children. But secondly, there's something else here that's often missed, and it's found in the phrase, fill the earth and subdue it. So God here delegates some of his authority and some responsibility to the family. I mean, think about it. God could have created all of the plants that would ever be, but instead he planted a garden. And, and, and he said to humanity, now you tend it. You make it grow. You cultivate it. And then he could have created all of the animals that would ever be. But instead he gave us dominion and said, you shepherd it. 
And he could have created all of the people who would ever be and created the cities and the cultures just how he wanted them to be. But instead, he created just two people. And he told these two people to have offspring and to fill the earth with other people. And the idea is that God delegated some of the responsibility to humanity. To fill the earth with people. To develop a godly culture. To develop a godly society. God left the development of culture and society to, first and foremost, the family unit. It's not really first and foremost to the government. Oh, I got one amen on that. It's not first and foremost to the government. And you want to know what? It's not even first and foremost to the church. We help. But first and foremost, it's to godly families. It's to godly people that God entrusted the development of godly culture. And so when the family collapses, culture tends to collapse with it. When the family is a mess, culture tends to be a mess as well. That's why it's so important to follow and honor God's ideas and purposes for the family. And you know, there's a really cool passage about this in Malachi. Um, God was speaking through the prophet Malachi to his generation about how carelessly they were treating their marriages and their families. And he said this, you belong to him, body and spirit. And, and what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. God wants the family to take the lead in developing godly culture. All right, so here's what we've seen so far, all right? Um, here's God's ideas. He said he created this male and female, and that was very good. Marriage is intended to be between one male and one female for one lifetime in a relationship that's characterized by love and honor. The family is intended to be a force for the promotion of godly culture through the production of godly offspring. And it's blessed and favored by God himself and intended to be a blessing from God. All right, now there's one more idea that I want you to see in this, and it's from Ephesians chapter 5, before we close this morning. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, uh, through chapter 6, verse 4, there's this passage that says a whole bunch of things about the family, to husbands and to wives and to children and to parents uh, as well, and how we should act towards each other and behave uh, with each other. And to husbands, he says that they should love their wives sacrificially, as Christ, the same way, Jesus loved the church. To wives, he says that you should respect and treat your husbands with honor. To the children, he says, obey your parents and honor them. And to the parents, he says, Don't, do not exasperate or frustrate your children, but instead spend time with them, instruct them in how to love and serve God and be a godly person. And in the middle of all of this instruction, he pauses for a moment in verse 32 and says this, This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, wait a minute here. I mean, it looks to me like he's been talking about the family, right? I mean, it looks like he's talking about the family. But at the same time, he's also talking about Jesus and the body of Christ. So a Christian family is supposed to be an illustration and a demonstration of the relationship between Jesus and the body of Christ. It's supposed to say something to the world around you about the grace and love and mercy of God. So when a husband really loves his wife and sacrifices for her, it illustrates something of the love that God has for people. And sacrifice. You mean, Pastor, I'm supposed to sacrifice for her? 
You mean like sacrifice stuff like my time, my energy, my wants and my desires? Well, yes. Yes, it says, husbands, love your wives just the same way Jesus loved the church, which was sacrificially. And any husband who is a follower of Jesus should love his wife enough to make sacrifices for her. I got one guy say amen. No women, all right? All right. Amen. That's good preaching. You know what? When that happens, people notice. There's something different about that. And then when it says, um, wives, treat your husbands with respect and honor. When a wife treats her husband with respect, and it illustrates something of the grace of God. You mean respect, Pastor? I've got to respect him? Amen. That means don't say demeaning things, right? Don't tear him down. Don't be talking to all your friends about how terrible he is. Don't, don't, don't join in. If they, uh, if they say, you know, oh, man, everything's really bad and all that. Aren't they really? Oh, yeah. Mine's just terrible. No, don't. Especially in front of your unbelieving friends. And my goodness sake, don't do those things in front of your children or, or grandchildren about their father. You know, when you treat your husband with respect, people notice there's something that's different about that. Then children, if you're a child or you're a teen in here, I know there's some teens in here. Treat your parents and treat your authorities with respect and obedience and honor. That will make you stand out. Listen, it's easy to go with the crowd, you know, and, uh, and go with what they're doing and, and treat your authorities with disrespect and dishonor. But God says to treat your parents and, and your authorities with respect and obedience and on, it's not a good witness for you to be out there dissing your parents and dissing your teachers and dissing every other authority there is. And then suggesting to your friends that they sub- should, should submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that doesn't look good. But when you treat your parents and others with respect, with honor, say that's different. That gets people's attention. It says something about the grace of God. And then parents, behind this idea in verse six, uh, Ephesians 6 verse 4 is that we have the same attitude... That Jesus had towards children. If you've got children, if you've got grandchildren, or any children that come under your sphere of influence, he says, let the children come to me. And the idea is that children aren't just a bother, right? Someone to put up with. They are people worthy of our time and attention. You know, did you know that the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength? You know, Jesus wasn't making that up on the spot when they asked him about that. He was actually quoting a commandment from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's called the Shema. And that commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6 goes on and it says this. And these commandments I give you shall be on your heart and in your mouth. You shall teach them to your children. And basically all day long. He says when you rise up, when when you're in your house, when you walk along the way, when you come back to your house, when you go to sleep. All day long you shall teach them to your children. Say that sounds a lot like train them in the fear and admonition of of the Lord. And here's the point. Here's the big point. When a Christian family is being and developing into all that it's supposed to be, it's an illustrated sermon to the world, to the community, that displays the grace of God in the city gates. The body of Christ needs not only to hold to God's purpose and ideas and designs for the family, but we also need to display To be living, breathing examples of the virtues of God's ideas and how they bless people and families and the community and culture. Okay, one more quick thought before we conclude this morning. 
you know, there's a few people, and I don't want to leave anyone out. Because God adds one more thing in the New Testament that we don't see a lot about in the Old Testament. And it's this. The Lord Jesus blesses and favors a single life as well. A single life that's lived and dedicated to the Lord Jesus. God blesses that and his favor is on that. So those of you uh, young people, you're not yet married yet. Or those of you who may be widows or, or widowers. You're every bit as blessed and as favored of God. And in some ways, God says you can even be a bigger light. And you can be even more dedicated to Jesus. You add to the family of God. So, all right. As we get ready to conclude this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team if they just come back at this time. And it's my hope that our families and all of our individuals as well are, are blessed by God from the youngest to the oldest. Uh, that God will make you a light and your family's a light. And my prayer for you is Psalm 128, where it says this. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessing and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be blessed like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace beyond Israel. Amen and amen.